Welcome to Learning Through Technology, a K-12 EdTech podcast brought to you by STS Education. We strive to be the bridge that connects communities of educators so that they can fulfill the promise of learning through technology. Join us every other week as we connect with education leaders who share their deep experience with the education and technology topics you are grappling with in your own schools and districts. Each interview is designed to bring you tangible ideas you can start using tomorrow. I'm Alex Inman, the founder of Educational Collaborators. And I'm Bob Sabruti, founder of the Edutech Group. Welcome to the show. So, Bob, were you a gamer? I think gamer is a cool name now. I don't think what I did was cool when I was playing with my Atari 2600, but I did rule the world in asteroids in the day. So (laughs) I did spend quite a bit of time joystick in hand. And then, you know, my first engineering job, that's what we did as 22, 23 year old engineers is we played Doom 2, I think, and shot each other up. So, yeah, I've done some gaming and I still try to get some time now to do it. How about you? So I think I learned more about networking. I know I'm a tech director, but I learned my early days of networking, not studying technology, but setting up LAN games, right? And for us, it was Doom and Doom 2 as well. A little bit of Quake. And we'd all just pile our ridiculously large PCs into our cars, drive to somebody's house, set up a network, and then play. And it was great. I've never done competitive gaming. My son does some of this stuff. He goes to tournaments. He every now and again comes home with a small prize. But I have been fascinated with how esports and gaming has grown as a very serious sort of club for student development. So I'm looking forward to our guest today. So we've got Dr. Woodruff, who's going to talk to us a lot about esports. Should be a good show. I think so, too. Let's get started. Well, welcome, everybody. So today we are joined by Dr. Richard Woodruff, commissioner and founder of the CCEL, which is the Central California Esports League. Dr. Woodruff has been involved in K-12 esports for over six years and is a retired pro esports player. Dr. Woodruff has spent over 17 years studying stress and wellness. These studies, along with formal research, have led to the creation of resources and techniques that Dr. Woodruff has been using to better support staff with enhanced stress management and EQ development, accelerating the learning process of new skills, team building, resiliency, rapid decompression of high stress, shifting perspectives of stressors, general wellness, and more. Dr. Woodruff is also an advocate for K-12 esports, leadership development, career development, and preparedness, and empowering the voices of the community. Dr. Woodruff, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you very much. Nice to see you all. So, Dr. Woodruff, I'm excited to get started in talking about esports. It's uh, near and dear to my heart as an OG esporter in the 80s that we could talk about a little later. But let's start with setting the stage for you and how you ended up here. You are the Regional Director of Innovative Technology at Aspire Public Schools. Tell us a bit about what that entails. What did you do day to day? And how do you end up in a position like that? (laughs) For sure. And this will probably segue nicely into how the league actually started too. So at the time, the administration of the Central Valley Regional Office for Aspire Public Schools was wanting to see how could we use ed tech maybe in new and innovative ways at our school sites to help inspire creativity and just get kids really just pumped up about science, STEM, et cetera. And so we started messing with the idea of like fabrication labs or fab labs or tinker spaces, you know, where we could put Vex Robotics, et cetera. And so I started meeting with all of the principals within the Central Valley region, having conversations with them about 
What kind of technology do you have? What is your vision for the future? What have your students asked for? And all of this led to my stopping at Langston Hughes Academy in Stockton and having a conversation with the principal. And about midway through, as we were talking about making a fab lab there, a student comes in by the name of Noah Tuatabuki and looks at the principal, looks at me and says, is this the person? Principal nods. And then he said, can I? Principal nods again. And the student gives me like a 30 second pitch on esports needs to be involved in schools, especially their school. And I was like, wow, this is really cool. I appreciate how brave the student is and how passionate they are. And I said, okay, well, let me do my research. Did some research on it. And at the time, I think there was about 90 colleges and universities offering scholarships. And that was enough for me to provide additional opportunities. So I said, sure. Went back to the student and said, okay, can you create a presentation to where we could do town halls so that parents can come in, the community could come in, ask them tough questions and, and see if this is a fit for our community. He said, no problem. So not only him, but like, I think it was four or five of his friends who were probably the team. So they create the presentation. We do the town halls, parents asking tough questions, but unanimously, the parents accepted it. The educators accepted it. And so we decided to move forward with a pilot. Dr. Woodruff, what year was this? Oh, this had to have been 2017, I think it was. Okay. 2016, 2017, somewhere in there. And we were just going to go between two high schools. And we were going to use the game League of Legends because that was the game they had pitched. That game at the time could run on almost any computer lab computer. So we didn't really have to invest in anything. It was something that we just had to work with IT. And so we went for it. And then as I was doing more town halls and more schools, at the second school, I did a town hall there. A parent was there who happened to have been the director of IT at the time for Lodi Unified School District because her son was a student there. And so she was asking really good questions, but I guess I passed because <laughs> <laughs> she went back and, and told her super and the super was interested Then the board approved it and they wanted to go all in district wide. But before they did that, they piloted with one of their comprehensives. And so we had two relatively small high schools playing against a major comprehensive high school. And by the next year, they went district-wide. We had other districts that were reaching out to us. And we've just pretty much exponentially been growing. And I think we're at about 13 districts now to include charter management organizations, private institutions, county offices of ed. We just have a lot of support from them, and it's just kind of followed me through my K-12 career. No matter where I've been going, they've been asking me to create these things or to support these things, and it's just been a wild ride. What are some of the questions you encountered in those town halls? So probably the most obvious one, I would say, is there violence in the game? Do these games have ratings? What is your due diligence or what is your process on selecting these games? But at the time, we only had one game and the ESRB for League of Legends at the time, I believe was T for teen. And that's part of what led to our decision to support League of Legends because the characters are very small. So there's not really any gratuitous violence or anything like that. Could play on almost anything. And it had the most amount of college and professional pathways. And so parents were able to sign off on that. So explain to our listeners, and basically that's me saying, explain to me, what do you mean it had more professional 
and career pathways? So when we looked into colleges and when we reached out to colleges and universities at the time, that was the big ticket. That was the game that they were looking for players for. And then if you looked in the professional arena at the time, the League of Legends Worlds was having, I believe, almost more than the Super Bowl here in the United States as far as viewership worldwide. And they were putting a lot of money into that. And so it was a real way that our students could go straight into the pros, so to speak. And at the time, an average professional salary for an esports player of League of Legends back then was about 75000 I think it's about 103000 now, not just for League of Legends, but esports in general. And so that right there seemed like a fantastic additional opportunity for our students, either to get a scholarship or to go straight into the pros. This is great. So had you done your pro plane prior to this? Yeah. So tell me a little bit about like, what does esports in K-12 look like? And how is that different than some of the pro work or collegiate, actually? I mean, because I'm also kind of interested in like high K-12 collegiate pro. And I think you can jump, right? Like you don't have to go to collegiate to play pro, right? For sure. Yeah. And I think they all use the same moniker of esports, but I think there's almost three somewhat separate entities such that pro it's for the money for selling merchandise for selling airtime and influencing etc in colleges it's kind of like an amateur version of that like they're getting ready to move into something like that or to maybe to create their own brand or something along those lines whereas in k12 it's maybe a little bit of that but it's more so of providing an engagement conduit for students who maybe never really were able to identify with their school or maybe never really able to identify with academics. So it's a way that we can kind of bring that together. And in one of our larger districts, they just conducted some internal research, which they found that 79% of their students who were given an opportunity to play esports said that they had never identified with their schools in any other way before then. 79% of the students who were playing esports said that they didn't really previously have a way to connect to their school. Exactly. They hadn't gone to activities, they hadn't been a part of clubs or sports or anything until that opportunity was presented. And we see that pretty much everywhere. And I've personally seen when we were first starting out, students who maybe were a bit disenfranchised with their academics, and guess what? They're not meeting requirements, so they can't play on the team. So then once they realize that that is a component, they start caring more about their academics. They become more engaged. Next season, they make the team. There's a huge like celebration with the team. It's really a beautiful sight to see. I've read several times or many times about student engagement after involvement in esports, but specifically, one of the things that has come about in the schools that we work with is a crisis of attendance. Students just are not attending school in this kind of post-COVID educational. And I've read statistics about how students attend school so they can be a part of the esports team as a not so great student in high school. I know that I was at school every day when there was a baseball game or practice, but my attendance was a little, little less on the spot when there weren't. So does that match your experience or research that you've had? Yeah, that's what we're seeing too. I think statewide for California, I think they're seeing like roughly 30% of students just aren't coming to school or aren't coming back to school. It's a huge challenge right now. And what we've been hearing and or seeing is that our schools that have esports programs, 
they're not seeing those high of numbers. Sure, they're seeing something because, you know, we're all recovering from the pandemic, but they're seeing a lot more engagement. They're seeing a lot more attendance. And especially when the students know that you have to show up if you want to play, because most everything we do is in person, whether at their school campus or at a championship event that we host. That makes sense. I didn't even think about that. Like, did you guys, we're talking about attendance in person, but you started these leagues before the pandemic. Did you guys continue to do these leagues remote and just play online? And then when the pandemic was over and schools are back, you really require them to be there. Yeah. And so this kind of touches on some of my previous experience as a player. Back when I was more of what you would call an elitist jerk, we were all all stars. We all were in our own lane. We only cared about what I was doing and what they were doing. Never in twain shall we meet, so to speak. And it was really toxic. And I was exposed to a lot of toxicity. And it wasn't until I started playing overseas and seeing a more collectivistic perspective, which really, I kind of tell the story, of kind of saved my life. I am an autistic person. Most of my life has been socially very difficult. And it wasn't until I started playing in those collectivistic societies, basically, that taught me a lot about myself and community and playing together, which I then tried to bring back to the esports league that we were starting. And so we asked the students, would you like to see each other in person more often? How can we bring it together? And what we saw over the years is bringing the students together in person was huge. Having them play shoulder to shoulder at their campus was huge. And we even have data from that in the surveys we've done where students are actually saying, sure, I could play by myself with my friends over the internet, but when I'm playing in person with them, it's a lot more fun. It's a lot more engaging and they feel better. So I think there's a whole part that I'd like to talk about, about your play professionally and overseas. And one of the aspects that parents miss and teachers miss is that you play as a team still. Like they see a kid in a basement, the cliche kid in the basement by themselves, but they're not gaming by themselves. I still game some myself. And when I'm doing iRacing, I do it with friends, even though I'm by myself at my game. I want to talk about that, but I want to talk about students still and in esports as it relates to our students still directly is there was an article in EdTech that said esports thrives in K-12 schools for reasons other than gameplay. So, so far, we've talked about the gaming aspect. What other reasons are you referring to? That's a really good point and question. And that's something that I've kind of shifted gears into promoting more, not just for the league, but for the larger esports community, being on podcasts and being on TV to kind of share that part, which is building the culture in the community of esports. And it's kind of like creating an environment that flips the script of when you're in a silo, when you're by yourself playing a game, it's a lot easier to be toxic or to be exposed to toxicity. But when you have people that you know in person, or even if you're playing across the nation, so to speak, or across the world, but then you see each other in person, it really helps to build that bridge to kind of remove that toxicity. And that's what we've seen with our players too. And so that's one of the reasons, you know, why it's so important to bring them together because they also see that they're not alone. So when we do the championship events, even if your school didn't make it to it, you're still invited. We still have random games that they can play, random prizing they can win. So we bring everyone together and we recommend that they wear their jerseys 
And so we fill an area of about 200 to 300 people live to where they're all seeing different jerseys and they're all able to like realize that there's this camaraderie, especially like when they're seeing like a team fight in League of Legends and everything is just condensing. Just the crowd just goes wild. The shoutcasters are going wild and it's just so beautiful. I'm like, I'm getting hyped just talking about it just because like the energy I feel when I'm there, that is a huge part of, I think what has made us successful and what we're hoping to share with others so that they can get that. Because once the students have that and it's consistent, it becomes a part of their culture to where they know that they can express their identity more openly and just be themselves more. Does that culture help expand to the larger school culture? So like you gave the stat about the 79% of the students not feeling like they're part of the school community. What you described, I get, and it's amazing and awesome for these kids to have that feeling of team, community, support, fun, camaraderie. How does that move into or translate or transfer into the school culture outside of esports within that school community? For sure. And I think that's a really good question. What we've seen is the students take on more of a, I guess, a wider perspective of their identity in the community to where it's no longer just themselves or their two or three friends or four friends. Now they're a part of a team. They have a coach, but now they're also part of the school because they had that big disconnect where they didn't feel connected to the school. And so as they become more connected to the school, they start to ask for things. They start to advocate. They start to say, well, how can we talk to colleges about this? You know, how can we meet professionals about this? It's really an interesting component because we're just now starting to see that over the past couple of years, because I guess we've been consistent enough to where it's just naturally starting to grow in schools and districts. But it's been really fascinating to see. Yeah, I actually want to get back to some of that at the end of this discussion about where it's going and where it's growing. But I'm a culture hack. I love seeing culture. One of my sort of favorite sort of business phrases is that culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? When you've got a a culture of people that believe and act in a similar way, it will drive everything. So I was fascinated at the beginning. You also talked about when you were starting these teams with the various communities, you did these like parent town halls. So this is going beyond just the kids and the school, now we're really talking to the community. What ways does esports serve the community or draw in the community out beyond the walls of the school? Very good question. And this has particularly been resonating with me. So I'm also a part of like European esports research network. And because they're a bit ahead of the United States in esports and how it's marrying professional and academics, et cetera. And what they've been finding is that their professional outlets, their corporations, their businesses are preferring gamers because what they're finding is that more often people who go through their gaming programs or who are gamers are exhibiting things like grit, determination, leadership, communication skills, working in teams and things of that sort. To a degree even larger than other sports or just to the degree that sports also provides that other sports provide. And I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm not necessarily saying that it doesn't exist in anywhere else, but what they are finding is that it exists more often with students who are gamers. Really? Yes. Awesome. And so they're more likely to employ them 
which has also allowed their universities to expand their esports programming, which here in the United States, I believe we're just now starting to have universities that are doing those sorts of things. And so I've seen students who are parts of our program and others go out into the community to do things. They're more likely to create something or volunteer. And this reminds me of something that I saw the London mayor do. The mayor of London found that they had a large population of unemployed people who also were around the same age as people who were gamers. So the mayor of London doubled down and brought in gaming companies and universities to try and create pathways for you want to design a game or be part of the gaming industry and was able to basically kneecap their unemployment rates for those targeted ages, which is something I definitely want to work with local municipalities to be like, this worked over there. This could work here. I was not aware of that. I mean, right now we've got a low unemployment rate, but that particular population actually is struggling. 18 to 28, I think, was the age. Yeah. So like, huh, that is fascinating. So Alex's question kind of got us away from the game, right? How do you speak to the community about concerns, about benefits? I guess I want to expand on that away from the game for the students. And in my experience in working with, just obviously not as vast as yours, in working with some schools is that they have students who don't game at all, but they're interested in the promotion of the league or of the team or marketing of the team and getting sponsors for the team, that sort of thing. So what's been your experience with with students' involvement outside of the game? For sure. And I really appreciate you bringing that up. So we've probably seen that maybe really start to pick up about three years ago, just kind of on the in the middle of the pandemic, kind of moving out of it like influencing. There's so many people that want to be an influencer. And so a lot of people who around the middle high school age, so to speak, back in the years ago, they were like, maybe I could become a YouTuber. Maybe I could become an influencer on Twitch or something. And so then they see that they have an esports team. They're like, maybe I could do this. And so we were seeing students come out saying, hey, I don't know anything about this game, but I want to be on YouTube or on Twitch. Can you help us out? And so that's one of the things that when we're meeting with principals or with coaches or whatever, when they're just starting out, is sharing with them that it's pretty easy to get into shoutcasting with like the turnkey stuff that we provide, you know, using OBS and one mic and one camera, two students on a laptop, and you could be off and running. And we've seen that surge. And when I was speaking with a colleague of mine last week, our local colleges are at capacity. They don't even have enough space and enough instructors to meet that demand. And we've even been approached by recruiters saying, hey, we're looking for anything. We will give full ride $50,000 a year scholarships for anything esports. They could be a shoutcaster, a stats runner, spirit booster, multimedia design, assistant coach, anything like that, in addition to the players. Boxlight is a go-to provider of award-winning education technology solutions and services across key product categories that work seamlessly together to enhance teaching, learning, alerting, and device management. Boxlight family includes Mimeo for award-winning education interactive flat panels, STEM products and curriculum, front row for industry-leading classroom audio and school-wide communications, including emergency notification and response. Clever Touch technologies for advanced interactive and non-interactive displays 
and U.S. Education for Professional Development and Services. Visit boxlight.com today to learn more. Boxlight, better solutions, better results. So colleges are giving money for non-players in their esports program? Those are more of your private and faith-based universities, but yes. I was surprised to hear my son plays a few instruments and writes a little bit of music. And he sold his first song. The song that he sold, or, or he got a commission, I guess. it was He didn't sell an existing song. He got a commission to create an intro music for a Twitch podcaster on eSports. So it was just great that eSports ended up being his sort of first musical commission. And we do stuff at Pacific One Source. We support schools with eSports. That one was not even on my radar. <laughs> <laughs> So I appreciate you sharing that. And there's another one to that too, is graphical overlays and bleed through transitions for like OBS. I know of a couple of artists, that's all they do. They're making a living just creating those overlays and those template covers. And the cool stuff that you see when you're watching a streamer are designed by multimedia artists and that's all they do. And they're making a good living doing it. Wow. What an industry. Do you have a sense of how large the esports industry is globally, like from a financial level? Do you have any idea? I would say about three years ago, I heard around three billion. I'm thinking now it's probably closer to four, maybe four and a half billion, even maybe more. And I know some of the tech companies have been scaling back a bit, you know, because now that we're coming out of the pandemic, they're kind of reorganizing. But I think this is just maybe a lull for them, just kind of a slight dip, because what we have found, like when we first started six, seven years ago, we found that about 30% of our players were what you call hardcore, playing 20 hours a week or more. Since then, and nationally now that I've been discussing with other organizations, we're up to about 47% are there. And so we see this as increasing. And so by the time these students are in college, outside of college, they're going to be very esports hungry. They're going to have teams or they're going to want teams. They're going to be wearing merch to represent. Just as you see someone wearing a Golden State Warriors jersey or something like that, you're going to be seeing more of your Cloud Nines, your Hundred Thieves, or maybe some new entity. So, Dr. Woodruff, your numbers match, I think, our experiences with the draw of gaming, right? I mean, that's why we're talking about esports is because it draws students, that magnetic quality of it. Have you encountered or have advice for managing that sort of addictive behavior that comes with gaming? I mean, I know I've, especially at the height of the pandemic, I'd sit down at my gaming computer and 10 o'clock and I'm just going to go a couple rounds here and then it's three in the morning. Oh my God. It, and I'm a, at least play a responsible adult on TV. So it's like, what happens to a kid who finds that far more important than school or whatever else? And what do we do about it? For sure. I think this is definitely a growing concern, and some of our colleagues, friends in Europe are doing research on this. And basically, there's several things that can be done. So like, if you're an adult, and you're a gamer, and you find that you're maybe gaming a little more than you want to, set some alarms. It's like, even myself, if I know I have a meeting to be, or if I have something I have to do, I'm setting an alarm. So I'm only playing for 30 minutes because sometimes when you play, you lose track of time. I mean, they're designed that way for the most part. And especially if you're playing with friends, that time can just disappear. And so for students, what we have found is 
when parents are more involved with speaking to their kids about the games that they're playing, like really being interested. And so like, in what game are you playing and what are you doing in the game? Not like as an authoritative person, but just as a coming from a place of curiosity and then asking them how they're progressing in the game, like just really basically caring about something that the student really cares about in the game. And what we find is that students will probably play the game less and interact with the parents and the family more because they're not necessarily feeling like they just have to stay in the game to get that same validation perspective. It's really been fascinating. And I've been tracking this outside of even our league for years. And so being more involved can definitely help with that. So a kind of a logistical question that I've been asked, it's an interesting topic and one that a lot of parents struggle with. So I think that's a fantastic answer because that answer about getting them more connected inside their human lives is precisely what they want anyway, right? So like the solution to the addiction is the very thing that they're seeking and hoping, right? Which esports and management and community involvement can get. I think it's beautiful. I think it's really wonderful. So I get asked a lot from schools and I don't have the best answer for this. And I don't think anyone better than a founder could, but how do schools get started? So a district doesn't have a, a local esports league near them. They don't have an esports expert in the building. No parents, no kids are pulling somebody in like you to say, this guy? Yeah. Okay. So how does a school that has students that are interested in esports get it off the ground without having any of that infrastructure in-house? Great question. And something we get quite often. So it really depends on how big the interest is, like, and do you want to walk or do you want to run? So something that we're trying to develop within our league is creating kind of like an academy, if you will, like an offshoot to where alumni players from our program and from local colleges can come and kind of be like assistant coaches to where they can go in and basically get the experience they need or want by supporting other schools, other districts, and other places around the country to how do you get this off the ground? And these players are super passionate. They're super driven. And that's what you need to kind of get the sis boom ba to get to get the culture going. And as far as like investment, it could be very minimal. Typically, it could be existing infrastructure that they have, or maybe they need to invest a little bit. And so sometimes when we find that they need to do investments, that's when we can bring in the dual purpose of the machines, such as for CTE pathways, for design and things of that sort. And there's a ton of grants that are out there for that. And being able to dual purpose a machine is just a win-win for everybody. So let me dig into that one just a little bit, because that follow-up question is, where do I go to get the talent? And then also, where do I get the money? So you mentioned that there's grants out there. What kind of grant funding is out there for esports or the other things that you might use your esports computers for? So far, we haven't really found any grant funding, you know, federal funding or statewide funding for esports specifically. And even our private grant entities typically don't want to fund a sport. But what we do find is there's a ton of funding out there for engagement, for after school or expanded learning opportunities. Title I, there's also CTE pathways. And so all of these can fund the actual hardware, the infrastructure that you might need to provide these, but the funding sources have to be used initially for something else, which we find 
usually mirrors something they already have or something they've been wanting to do in the first place. So that just kind of fits that part. And then in addition to that, that's when we can provide maybe somebody to support them with getting a league off the ground or connecting them with coaches or something like that to bring in the, the esports component of it. So you teach drafting on AutoCAD during the day on these machines. And then after class, you fire up Rocket League and you get more students in, interested in school and in the concepts involved with esports. 100%. Yeah, we're finding drafting, multimedia design, journalism, entrepreneurship, those types of pathways tend to be a good fit and computer science, like coding. And use like Perkins funding and those kinds of things for this kind of stuff. That makes sense. I've got a question. I would like to talk a bit about your experience as a professional esport competitor. How did you get involved? Esports is relatively young. I will make no guess on your age, <laughs> but I think you've well past high school. So how did you get started and what was your path? Sure. This was before all the glamour of your cloud nines and your million dollar pots and things of that nature. This was back in the days or the era of Quake and Unreal Tournament, $500 to $1,000 per tournament. And then right around this time, World of Warcraft. So I was paid by like groups, families, to basically support them with running a guild, running a raid, helping them to see in-game content. Because before this, I was working with other guilds for world first, server first, grinding six hours a night with a team of you know anywhere from 10 to 40 people, four days a week. So a lot of time I was spent honing my skills so that I could then work with families to show them a good time, basically. And I honestly can say I had way more fun with the family feel rating and in-game content than I ever did trying to go for the first spot. So these family supports, this was like you helping kids sort of learn how to be successful gamers? Is that like sort of coaching and playing with them? Kids, parents, the whole family. Yeah. Well, kids and parents. Yeah. And that's awesome. Yeah, I'm not sure my wife would want that, but my kids would love that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it works out for everybody because if they're bringing somebody in, it's kind of, at the time, we called it hard carrying, where basically somebody like myself might be picking up the slack on like three or four roles so that maybe people who are not as experienced can still do things. But that meant that we would finish things faster so that they can go back to real life faster. I see. Oh, yeah, that's good. I like air quotes on real life. <laughs> there's a gamer for you when real life gets air quotes and the gaming doesn't <laughs> hey you know I, I appreciate you saying that and that's something that i want to bring up is the whole thing about digital identity your in-game name your ign so myself i've been working on developing some social emotional learning video game curriculum and it's been going over very well and one of the most powerful lessons is talking about your digital identity and your real world identity and how you bridge them together. Because a lot of the players that we have, when we bring them to events and things in front of people, typically very shy, not used to doing things like that. But when we say, hey, we're going to introduce you by your IGN, we're not going to introduce you by your real name, so to speak. And they are just like, oh, wow, really? 
So they become a lot more confident. They become a lot less shy. You'll see them like do a, like a pose or a dab or something when they're on stage. It's really beautiful to see as we start to kind of bridge that into the real world, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> so we wrap up all of our interviews with the same two questions or variations thereof because we want to make sure that one is more for fun and the other is for making sure that we give actionable information to the folks who listen to the show. So first, kind of who in the world of ed tech or education would you most like to take to lunch? That's a good question. I've been toiling on this one. I think it's kind of split between three different professors. So I'll just share them. So there's Tobias Scholz of University of Agder, I believe is in Norway. Professor Andy Maya of the University of Salford, I believe is in the UK. And Professor Chris Anderson, who is a professor at Toronto Metro University. And they're all doing super amazing things. Like Tobias Scholz is a part of startup called Metagame, which are doing really cool things with gaming and business and academics, just kind of blending them all together, which I believe most of the work they're doing is in Germany, which is really cool. And Andy Maya is all over the place. I see Andy Maya everywhere. He's very charismatic. He's very good at getting the students pumped. And he's developed a lot of programs and inroads for a lot of other people to kind of borrow from. And Chris Anderson kind of doing the same thing, but in Canada. And he's uh, connected with like Red Bull and a whole bunch of other things, really kind of trying to flex and stretch how esports can be connected with universities and professional and influencers and things of that sort. So any one of them would be cool. And they're all nice enough and approachable. So I've talked with them through LinkedIn, but I haven't had lunch with them. <laughs> imagine if you if it was the four of you, right? Can you imagine what that lunch? Oh like? yeah, geez, Woo. we'd probably create a tech startup, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> Before the end of lunch. So, what are some resources that you can point to that our listeners can go and pursue in their own interest with esports? For sure. I would say probably the most powerful that I have found is on LinkedIn. So hit up LinkedIn, start searching for anything esports. There's a ton of them out there. I'm probably a member of like 10 or so pages. One that uh, really is resonating with me right now is Hitmarker. They tend to show like what's happening in the gaming industry. Also like connecting people with internships and new jobs that are available. And they're really good about being consistent with new information. So almost every day I'm seeing something new from them. I'm like, oh, this is a new way to use the Unreal Engine or to use Unity or something like that. And, oh, look what this person is developing over in Japan on this. It's just really cool. Do you have to already be pretty skilled to get in there? Or do you think that LinkedIn is still a resource for somebody who's sort of growing into that space? Oh, that's a good point. I think you would have to spend some time in LinkedIn to kind of understand how to search for things and be connected with things and get into the right algorithm, so to speak. I imagine hit markers also, you could probably Google it, gaming and esports jobs, and that should connect you with a whole bunch of things too. Oh, that's awesome. Well, Dr. Woodruff, thank you so much for joining us today. This was a ton of fun. Bob and I kind of geek out a little bit about our old school land or days. And so this was great to sort of see how it's matured and see what a powerful impact it is having on kids' lives. That is certainly the most exciting part about all of this. So thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. 
It was a great time having you. I really enjoyed this conversation. Seems like there could be so much more still to talk about esports and students, and I'm sure there will be. <laughs> For sure. So, Alex, I'm wondering, are we cooler now that we know a retired esports professional? Oh, absolutely. I'm using that like in my very next conversation. <laughs> totally dropping that. I think that it's just fascinating to Dr. Woodruff about all the things related to esports that you may have never considered. Just outside of the game and community, I know that you lit up when he talked about his engagement with the community. What were you thinking about that? Oh, man. So there's a lot of people who want to stop gaming. And I loved how he started his conversations with reaching out to the community and doing parent meetings. Like that was before they even decided as to whether or not they were going to do a team. They started that way because I think there's so many community connections for esports in terms of like community sponsorship, community pride, like a football team and that kind of stuff. But also the time that he took to talk about the developmental benefits, parents in the community just need to hear. I thought that was great. You know, the other thing is I'll bet this will be the only time we have a guest who has a PhD wearing an esports jersey, right? Like that was just awesome. <laughs> I know. I have an esports jersey and I wish I'd have worn it, but I don't have a PhD. But I am. Now I know that the Edutech team, our company, has put together an esports team. And now I've got to get them jerseys and I'll have one and I'm going to wear it for one of these. The next time we talk to somebody about esports, I'm going to have an Edutech jersey on to prove that, well, I'm cool because I know Dr. Woodruff now. I just think it's awesome that you have an Edutech esports team. And now it's making me think that I need to reach out to our collaborators and see if we can have an educational collaborators team and we can have a throwdown. I That's right. have a hunch you would crush us. <laughs> I told our team when we formed it, if they don't dominate, I don't know who they are. So we're going to be taking on all comers. <laughs> well, if we stick with something like League of Legends or something like that, you'll probably crush us. I know you said you were the asteroid, the king of the asteroids universe. But if we go old school, <laughs> I may have some serious contenders. <laughs> we'll call that the Masters Division when we go back and play on the Atari 2600s. That, that'll be the Masters <laughs> Division, like in golf, right? All right, everyone. We will let you know what happens with the esports throwdown between educational collaborators and edutech. Thanks so much for joining our show today. Learning Through Technology, a K-12 edtech podcast, is brought to you by STS Education, a Pacific one-source company. To learn more about how educators can leverage technology to drive successful educational outcomes, check us out at www.stsed.com. Connect with us by searching for Learning Through Technology in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or anywhere else podcasts are found. And click subscribe so you don't miss an episode. On behalf of the team at STS Education, thanks for joining us.